David Oakes here and welcome to another episode of Trees A Crowd. Now, whilst I've been recording the majority of this season of the podcast, I have been fortunate enough to have been living in an Irish botanical garden, as you do. It is the icing on the cake of County Wicklow, known as Mount Usher Gardens. But the cherry atop the icing here, presumably a native bird or wild cherry, is arguably the maple walk, which greets you shortly after your arrival. A strip of mown lawn runs gently downhill to the banks of the River Vartry. Its incline has the effect of accelerating one into the gardens. But what slows your feet down, however, is that this grass pathway is flanked by the most stunning variety of non-native maple trees. And should you be canny enough to have timed your visit appropriately to just about now, really, the end of autumn, their leaves resound with the deepest scarlets, the most vibrant purples, and the richest of syrupy oranges. There's a couple of benches here too for you to absorb the effect fully, and there's obviously a pixelated postcard in the gift shop too to take these maples away with you. Now, maples used to constitute a standalone family, the Aceraceae. Unfortunately, they are now no longer, which means you rarely get a chance these days to say Aceraceae. So I'll give you a few seconds to try it out quickly. Aceraceae. Fun, ain't it? Anyway, the Aceraceae have recently been absorbed into the Sapindaceae, where the rest of their new family are mostly tropical vines. But alongside the maples and the vines, the Sapindaceae also houses the beautifully sweet lychee, the nutritious ackee, and another tree which most British residents are highly familiar with. It is Aesculus hippocastanum, a.k.a. the horse chestnut. The horse chestnut is one of my very favourite trees, but as an alien introduced to our shores in 1616, it is not one that makes it into this podcast series. Sorry about that. We have only two-ish, native-ish, members of the Sapindaceae on the British Isles, and they are both maples. And this week, I will be looking at the first of them, tree number 44. Field maple! The field maple. Acer Compestri. Over to you, Bella. A pudding, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. The field maple is truly native to England and the lower areas of Wales, but is now naturalised throughout the rest of the British Isles. It can be found in our wild woodlands, hedgerows and scrubland, pretty much everywhere really. For, like the field elm from a few months back, the field maple was highly cultivated by the Romans to support field upon field of grapevines. Hence the common names of both species, field. It's undeniable that the field maple is a truly pretty tree. They possess a lovely creamy bark and have smoothly haired grey-brown buds that take on a reddish tinge as they release their small yellowy-green hermaphroditic flowers, flowers that hang in clusters of dainty little cups. Their leaves are a crisp lime green and are, like almost all maples, shaped like something halfway between a hand and a ninja throwing star. Or, as a true botanist like my great-aunt would say, the leaves are palmately lobed. Either way, each leaf appears on the twig with a partner on the other side. Unlike next week's sycamore, another maple, which has serrated leaves, the field maple's leaves are noticeably smaller and possess smooth, curved margins. The tree's soft spring leaves are particularly pleasant as part of a salad, try it, and the tree's sweet sap can be tapped to and turned into syrups or wines. 
Our field maple may not compare in sweetness to that of the Canadian sugar maple, but even the Canadian syrupy sap needs a fair amount of distilling before you'll find it on the shelves. 40 pints of Canadian sugar maple sap make just one pint of pure maple syrup. And perhaps unsurprisingly for a genus of trees associated with sweetness, the tree provides a huge amount of appealing nourishment to our invertebrate friends. Aphids love maples, which in turn proves attractive to their predators and so on all the way up the food chain. The abundance of nectar and pollen is particularly good at supporting our apian friends, that's bees, and the tree's fruits are eaten by smaller birds and smaller mammals too. Typical of all maples, the fruits of the field maple and indeed next week's sycamore are dry, single seed and equipped with a wing. These are our samaras again. The sylvologist John Evelyn, more on him next week, likened them to birds' tongues. But unlike other trees with samaras, the elms, birches or hornbeam, etc., maple samaras are born in pairs, double samaras. The samaras of our two species, field maple and sycamore, can be easily distinguished by the angle between the two wings. In sycamores, they have a sad, dejected look. The wings hang down at a right angle to each other. While field maple samaras look smart, determined and focused, with the wings sticking out to either side in a straight line, like the moustache of a French detective. Now, these aerodynamic fruits intoxicated me as a child. I would throw them into the air and watch their intelligent fall to the floor. They descend with a magical spiral that seems to not only defer gravity, but also keep their descent trajectory directly perpendicular to the ground. Inspired by nature's design, the US Army developed a prototype airdrop supply carrier for possible use in the Second World War called the Skyhook. Made from wood, plastic and canvas, they constructed a giant maple samara about the height of a short man. It could be loaded with 30 kilograms of food and medicine and then be dropped from an aircraft where it would spin slowly to the ground just as the maple samara would that child me used to play with and that adult me won't admit to playing with on the record. The laden cargo hold acted as the skyhook's centre of gravity, just as the seed would in the maple samara. And unlike a parachute, it would not drift in the wind, but fall straight and fall slow. A perfect example of biomimicry, of we humans learning from the tricks of nature. The wood of the field maple is the hardest and highest density of all European maples, and it is considered to be a fantastic tonewood. Boxwood, as previously discussed, is great for oboes, clarinets and indeed most tubular instruments, but the field maple is splendid for violins, guitars and even for pianos. Most of Fender's guitars possess a maple neck. Stradivarius used maple for the back, ribs and neck of his legendary violins and found in the Saxon ship burial mound of Sutton Hoo, wrapped in a sealskin, was a preserved harp which was, you've guessed it, made from maple. The musical benefits of maple wood span the centuries, it seems. Now, it would be remiss of me to talk of maples, especially having opened this episode with reference to Mount Usher's vibrant maple walk, without discussing the maple genus's amazingly colourful autumnal foliage. But I've left it until this episode's conclusion, for our native maples could be argued to be a little disappointing on the colour front. Our field maple merely turns a bright yellow, and next week's sycamore has leaves that tend to fall before changing colour at all. If you want some maple colour on the British Isles, you're best to head to a botanical garden. Why not pop down to County Wicklow, for example? Or find yourself 
a Norway maple, a tree introduced to Britain in the 17th century, which is now fairly naturalised and turns yellow, then eventually red before shedding its leaves. But if you can justify the journey, it is the maples that flank the eastern seaboards of the North American and Asian continents that put on world-famous displays of purples, reds, oranges and yellows, and it is Japanese maple varieties like these that accompany your first steps into Mount Usher Gardens. So, here's the science. The leaves of most deciduous trees contain several colour pigments. They can serve a number of purposes, such as protection from extreme colds or UV protection from the sun's harmful rays. But for most of the year, the dominant and most important pigment, usually masking the rest, is the bright green chlorophyll. Now, chlorophyll is present in plant cells called chloroplasts, and chances are you would have looked at these under a microscope in your school biology lesson. And chlorophyll is one of the most important chemicals on Earth. It uniquely harnesses energy from the sun to create a photosynthetic powerhouse in which carbon dioxide is combined with water to form sugar. You'll hopefully have had the equation drummed into you at school, so repeat after me. 6CO2 plus 12H2O with light energy turns it to C6H12O6 plus 6O2 plus 6H2O. Now, aside from don't be a dick, it's the most important thing I have ever been taught. Without the oxygen that this process creates, we could not breathe. And without these sugars, life on Earth as we know it would not be possible. Breathing, digesting, thinking, reproducing, recording podcasts about photosynthesis, all of this stems from the carbohydrates in the plants that we eat or from the carbohydrates in the animals that we eat who eat said plants. But whether carnivore or vegan, you are alive because of the sun and because of the tiny chlorophyll-full chloroplasts present in our plant life. But that's the green. What does this have to do with red, purple, orange, pink, yellow, mauve, burgundy, puce, amber, indigo, scarlet, sienna? Well, during photosynthesis, chlorophyll is used up slash broken down and has to be renewed constantly. Essential ingredients such as nitrogen and magnesium sourced from the ground or stored elsewhere in the plant are transported to the leaves via its veins to do so. However, in autumn, as the sunny daytimes shorten and the temperature starts to fall, the ability for plants to photosynthesize as effectively as they can during the summer months also begins to wane. Subsequently, at this time, the plants start to prepare for winter and they begin the development of corky bungs in their veins at the point where they enter the base of the leaf. This is called the abscission layer. With these corky bungs in place, no more ingredients can enter the leaf to create more chlorophyll. The green colour fades away as the remainder of the chlorophyll is depleted, and the other pigments, previously hidden behind the green but still active, shine through. We are then permitted a few weeks of glory before the cold winter winds rip the leaves from the trees, but with no open wounds left behind, for the veins have already been sealed by the aforementioned corky bungs. And yes, if you haven't been drinking every time I say corky bungs, you have missed a trick. But it is these newly exposed autumnal pigments that make maples famous. Carotenoids. The pigments that colour carrots, pumpkins and tomatoes, but also lobsters, salmon and flamingos. Now these assist in photoprotection, the damage caused by sunlight, which is especially important at low temperatures. On the British Isles, it is the carotenoids that are responsible for the brilliant yellows and oranges of field maple, black poplar, hazel and birch, and are the dominant plastid pigment of about 15-30% to 30% of all the planet's tree species. 
Anthocyanins are another pigment. These occur in the cell sap that protects the tree against extreme colds. Characteristic anthocyanin colours in Britain include the iconic pinky red that occurs in spindle, the rich reds of our cherries, and the purple red of dogwood. Anthocyanins can be formed by 70% of tree species, but unlike the carotenoids, anthocyanins are manufactured solely in the autumn to protect the tree from the cold. It is often unmissable that really good autumnal colour occurs after a spell of particularly sunny days followed by really cold nights. Now this is because these pigments are manufactured from the breakdown of sugar molecules. The sunny days mean an abundance of sugar and the accompanying pigments, but the cold nights prevent the sugars being converted into carbohydrates and stored away, and as such leaves the colours in the leaves. Such weather conditions occur regularly along the seaboards of North America, Japan and Korea, but not so much in the British Isles and is one reason why we're slightly less colourful. But, I hear you ask, why go to all of this trouble and expense of manufacturing new pigments just weeks before the leaves fall? Well, there are two reasons that particularly impress me. One, maples are not mycorrhizal. They cannot rely on the cooperative support of nutrients and sugars from other tree species in the fungus club, so they must look after number one and make as much energy as possible before the days become too short and too cold. As such, they need these protective and colourful pigments to save them from extreme autumnal temperature shifts. And two... Research conducted in 2005 by Frank Frey on the red autumnal leaves of New York maples found that when the leaves eventually decomposed, anthocyanin pigments broke down into chemicals that were toxic to other plant species. It is as if the trees are clearing the way for a winter without adversaries, leaving them in prime position to spring back. In spring. <laughs> so that's it. Our one true native maple the field maple, and some accompanying science about so many other wonderful trees, including next week's native-ish maple, the sycamore. And with that, I will see you in seven days, or sooner still, if you care to join me on our Patreon account. Head along to treesacrowd.fm forward slash 56 trees, where you will find information on all of the species I have spoken about over the last few months. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you very soon. Or hear you. You will hear me. You will, you will hear me very soon. Up the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees. Of the British